0: This passage of Scripture, um, you know, a lot of us like to kind of think about who uh, we are uh, in the Bible, like what characters we would represent or, or most like or how we might see Jesus, and uh, I hope that most of you, you know, see yourself as the woman at the well or whatever, but if I'm honest with myself... I think Mark chapter 11 and 12, probably my chapter, uh, where uh, these people come to Jesus with all their wits and all of their learning, and they say, let's hash it out. Let's debate this. Let me really see what you're made of. So I don't know. Is that something uh, that, that would be familiar to you? Maybe not, but, but maybe as we get further along, you might find more sympathy in me than than you realize. So a little background about who who I uh, was before I was a pastor. Um, some could just say I was a jerk, but I officially was a, a, a debater. Uh, in high school, uh, I found my perfect fit, my niche. I tried sports, I tried all sorts of different school activities, and then I went to debate. And I loved debate, because this was the first place where I found a great reward in being smarter and more articulate than someone else. There's a lot of satisfaction when you can beat somebody, you know, with your physical skill, but there's something else entirely when you beat them with your brain. And so, look at this cool picture of me in high school. I don't know why my son is laughing. You don't have that many trophies. <laughs> uh, this, this is uh, this is me uh, after all of my rewards. Uh, I was a, a a very accomplished debater, and um, my favorite compliment I got was from uh, a a judge. All these debate tournaments have to be judged by a person who listens to you argue, and he. He ended up watching me through several years of, of my debate career. And he said to me that whenever I was in the room, he said, You were the smartest guy in the room. And I love that compliment. Like, that was, that's like exactly what my idol of my heart wants to be the smartest guy in the room. And you may be saying, Nathan, I don't see anything has changed. And that's, that's probably true. I am, I am constantly having to repent of the idol uh, that I am describing here. But being the smartest guy in the room, oh, that feels so good. And it felt so good. Do you struggle with the feeling of, of just being right? Do you just ever pursue that I am right? way past the point of it's good. Uh, l- let me ask you maybe a, 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 another way of getting at this question. How many of you this last week have said I am wrong once? Can you remi- you got a hand up? All right, twice. I know who you're married to, so I understand that. <laughs> No, uh, are we we familiar, are we well-versed in our marriages saying the words, I am wrong? In our workplaces saying, I am wrong? What about in reading scripture? Do we ever come to scripture and say, oh, I am wrong? Or do we find ourselves kind of always moving the the conversation in a direction where we are right, where we are uh, def- uh, without excuse, where we are the the person who knows it. I, I mean, I I think uh, I think that's pretty common for us. And so when I was the smartest guy in the room, that felt really really good. Um. Knowing that you're right, or you can convince someone you're right, or that you know better. Uh, or sometimes when you're losing an argument because you can't quite articulate it, and, and, and you just say, well, if you knew, if you really understood everything, you'd take my side. We, we just kind of have this built-in drive to be right. But what happens when you live as the smartest guy in the room? What happens when you live with always being right? I can tell you that smartest guy in the room might win a lot of debate rounds, but it started a really rocky marriage, right? When I got into a marriage, being the smartest guy in the room doesn't go very far. Um, You find yourself, if you're always committed to being right, to being justified to being uh, the winner in, in all these relationships that your relationships become very shallow or, or you may look back and you say I have a long history of just failed relationships why because they all end in an argument an argument that you were right right and you would rather have the argument than the relationship well, what happens when the smartest guy in the room goes into the spiritual realm? You end up completely lost. I can tell you that as the smartest guy in the room, my ego was so large that I started to question my faith. And I walked, as I got further into high school and college, I walked away from the faith thinking that it was a, as Mark says, a, uh, uh, an opiate for the masses. It was a crutch for not good thinkers, for foolish people. And even in my first couple years of college, I I, uh, went to these different booths at like, uh, you know, club day at, at college. And I'd go up to the Christian group and I would just quiz them. And I'd just show, you know, how silly their answers were. I was that guy. I was spiritually lost. So if we have this aversion to being wrong, you might not have it as bad as I do, but if we have this aversion to being wrong, why? Why are the words, I am wrong, so hard to speak and so rare to come out of our mouths? Do you know the first word that Jesus spoke when he started his ministry? It was repent. Repent means that the Christian life ought to be saying the words, I am wrong, a lot. And yet, are those the words that you find common in your life? So I really think we should dig down and ask this question. Really put the mirror in front of us. Why do we dread being wrong? Why do we resist correction? I think it is because inside of our heart, I think you're a slide behind maybe, uh, is that being right equals our right. Because I am right... In what I say and what I think, I have the right to be here, to have this space, to own the, the the position I am in. I think that we need this because, at heart, our our insides are just terrified of the fact that we might be the fool, that we might be uh, owned, that we might be wrong. And so uh, one of my uh, favorite theologians, A.W. Tozer, wrote a quote that just sticks with me, and I want to share it with you. He says, There is hardly a man or woman who dares to be just what he or she is without doctoring up the impression. The fear of being found out gnaws like rodents within their hearts. The man of culture is haunted by the fear he will someday come upon a man more cultured than himself. The learned man fears to meet a man more learned than he. The rich man sweats under the fear that his clothes or his car or his house will sometime be made to look cheap by comparison. I love this picture of this like rodent in our heart gnawing at us. And so we, we, we project and seek in all our ways to be right Because I think that that little rodent that's gnawing at our insecurity is saying, if you are wrong, if you are proved wrong, everything of who you are, what you are, what you will be, will fall like a house of cards. If you are wrong, then suddenly you're at fault. If you're wrong, then suddenly you're a loser. If you're wrong, then suddenly you're failing. And at the heart of all of that, if you're wrong, you are worthy of rejection. You can be rejected because you no longer have the right to be here because you're not right. You're wrong. And so this is a this is something that I think is in all of our hearts in one stage or another. The text that we have in front of us is Jesus' warning though, And a warning that is going to come quite crisply at us today. It is a warning that those who are never wrong, for those who are never wrong, the kingdom will be given to others. The kingdom will be given not to the never wrong, but to those who are repentant. That that is where this passage ends in uh, verses 12, 9, and 10, where it says... What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is having this debate with these leaders and authorities in in Judaism. And he is, is saying, if you continue to present yourself to me as the never wrongs, you'll lose it all. And so it is an exciting passage. It's a fun passage. There are twists and turns that we'll go through. But it, 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 it most important for us today is, is a passage to call us to examine. Do we have the spirit of the never wrong living in us? How do we approach Jesus? Jesus. Is there a part of us that would approach Jesus the way that we see the leaders of Israel approaching Jesus in this passage? As we go through this passage, we see the warning because Jesus is going to repeatedly turn the tables on those who approach him without repentance. This passage is actually going to show us three turns that Jesus is going to accomplish in the person's life who approaches him As a man of wits, as the smartest guy in the room, rather than from the posture of repentance. The first turn that that comes in this passage is that Jesus turns the tables on the clever. The clever are made the clueless. The clever are made the clueless. And so let, let's make sure we have the context of our passage. Last week, we'll preach Jesus' coming into Jerusalem and, and visiting the temple. And he clears the temple with, with, um, with drama, and he judges this fig tree, and the fig tree becomes kind of an image of the temple. It was supposed to have fruit, but it only had leaves, just like the temple was supposed to be full of the life of God, but it was actually empty. It was a den of robbers. And so Jesus has come to the temple. He's come to Jerusalem. This is the the end of Jesus' ministry that he has been promising through through the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, but very specifically since Mark chapter 8 when Peter confesses, I am the Christ. And last week, when he comes to the temple, he calls the temple a den of robbers. Those are words of judgment pulled from Jeremiah 7, where Jeremiah was speaking to the the people of the temple 800 years earlier who were using the temple as kind of this coverall for their idolatry, their wickedness, and their abuse of God's word. And And they would be saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We have the temple, therefore we're too big to fail. And God showed the people in Jeremiah's day, I will tear this temple down if you will not be faithful to me. And so Jesus calls the people who are running the temple in the first century the same words Jeremiah called those people. He says they have made the temple a den of robbers. Now who specifically are the robbers? Well, it's pretty clear if, if we go back to last week's passage. Verse 18 says, The chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So, the people who take greatest offense to, to this word, you have become a den of robbers, are the leaders and authorities of the temple. They take that word as a direct rebuke. And so in the passage that we have today, we have these rulers gathering together and saying, okay, he wants to bring the fight to our turf, we're taking it to him. And so this group that we know as the Sanhedrin, they're the rulers, uh, the religious rulers of Israel, Uh, they include the Pharisees and the scribes, they include the elders and the Sadducees, we'll learn about all of these more over the following weeks. They're the rulers, and all of their power comes from this temple. They are the guardians and the keepers of the temple. And so when Jesus attacks the temple, they experience it as a direct threat to themselves. Now, when they hear, you have made it a den of robbers, When Jesus confronts them and says, you have failed your job. You have made this place a den of robbers. Are these most religious, most studied, most scrupulous men cut to the heart with repentance? No. They're angry. How dare he say we are a den of robbers? How dare he say we are wrong? Right? Why? Is it because they want to protect the temple? No. Jesus is right. There's There's no way to argue with what Jesus says. The reason they are angry is because they are the right ones. And if you come into my turf where I am the right one, and you say I am wrong, You're bringing a fight. And so these rulers become angry because they are threatened at Jesus as he threatens their area of power and security. Now this is so tragic. Right? Because what was the role of the priests and the elders and the scribes? What was the purpose of studying all of these scriptures and and knowing them so well that you were a leader of the people? It was to make you the people on the, the, the wall that would be the first to say, there is our hope. There is the Messiah. There is God's promised one coming. And instead these people had become so self-absorbed with their self-righteousness, their never-wrongness, that though they were there to prepare and point to Christ, when the Christ comes, they oppose Him. They stand against Him. Why? Because they never imagined that the Christ Would disagree with them. They never imagined that the Christ would call them to repentance. Because why? They're never wrong. So the first criteria of the Messiah to them was the one that agreed with them. Now, how many of us in our hearts. Are fashioning the Messiah the same way? I know who the Messiah is because he agrees with me, right? Do we see the the, the the perverse circle of logic? And if the Messiah doesn't agree with me, then he must be wrong, or he must be understood wrongly. This is the smartest guy in the room. That's the way we think. So rather than submit to the Messiah, they decide they're going to have a sparring match. Right? Now, how do we know if we are a never wrong? How do we know if we have this spirit that is present in these these religious leaders? How do we know if we are a never wrong? I think this is a great point of examination. You are a never wrong if when you are corrected, you fight rather than repent. If when you are told that's not right, when you are told you're wrong, your instinctive response is, all right, it's on, versus let me examine that and see what's true so that I can repent right? Never wrongs cannot accept that they are wrong. And so they start with a fight. And you really find yourself being just a debater everywhere you go in life. And so instead of having stories of growth and repentance and reconciliation, you have stories of arguments and disagreements and fights. Your mind is filled up with quick retorts, quick reasons that you're justified. All of the reasons why if you understood correctly or you understood my situation, you would see it's me, I'm right. And so when I was in debate, the way that I won every round is I had tubs full of arguments, full of evidence. I mean... That there is six tubs. You said anything to me. I could read you 20 pages why you are wrong. I love doing it. But here's the fact. Whether you have a bunch of tubs that have evidence in it, if you are a never wrong, you have a mind filled with tubs of retorts and rebukes and whataboutisms that work to keep you from being wrong, right? Some examples are, you always have an excuse. You always have someone else to give the blame to. You you smolder. You take an argument and you triangulate it. I might not be able to win this one-on-one, but I'll get somebody that agrees with me, and now it's two-on-one, right? Right? These are the practices of a never wrong. Um, one person, uh, a, a counselor uh, that I was listening to through a podcast uh, shared um, about the particular personality type that that I am. Uh, they described that when <clears throat> when we're not winning an argument, My personality type kind of shuts down, disappears, gets really quiet. And you would think that maybe I've gotten really quiet to reflect and recognize, wait, I'm not waiting in the argument. I must be wrong. No. What my personality type does in that moment, not reflect. We're reloading. (laughs) We go into our separate little room and we find, all right, the next time we get in, I got 10 more arguments and here's what they're going to be. And so, if you are a reloader, rather than a reflector, this is what I'm talking about. I'm calling everyone here to do the examination. How do you deal with correction? How do you deal with confrontation? So, these these, uh, religious leaders, they set a trap. Uh, they don't respond to being called a den of robbers with repentance. They say, no, we are going to set a trap. And they come to Jesus and they say, whose authority told you that you could do what you are doing? By whose authority are you acting the way that you are acting? This is a, a, a great debate question. All right? Because there is no way for Jesus to answer this question without him getting in serious trouble. Let me get let me explain how this works. Jesus has to identify who his authority is. And the temple, the, the ones who have authority at the temple is very clearly in the scriptures the, the, the priests uh, and the elders, right? And so what claim does he have to authority? He he, he can the only thing that he can say that would that would win the, the authority to uh, perform at the temple the way he does is if he says that his authority is directly from God. Right? But if he says his authority is from God, if he claims verbally here in this moment, I am the Messiah, I am the one who God has invested with the right to clean his temple and to judge his rulers, then these rulers have a Absolutely packaged up with a bow argument that this man is an insurrectionist, he is a blasphemer, and he is a threat to the Romans. He is seeking to be king when there is no king but Caesar. And he's done. Right? But then, if Jesus says anything else to avoid that conclusion, if he says anything else, then he has completely illegitimized himself in front of the people. He has now officially and publicly gone on record that I am not the Christ because the Christ has the authority but I am not the Christ. My my authority comes from my righteous anger. My my authority comes from somewhere else. It is not a legitimate ground for him to do what he is doing. And therefore, the, the, the rulers of the temple have every right to arrest him and condemn him. And they have every right to publish, this guy is leading you astray because he is not the one. So the the, the 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 rulers here have set up in front of Jesus a lose lose. There is no good answer, right? This is such a brilliant maneuver. I mean, we are dealing with the smartest guys in the room. If I were the debate coach, I would be like, "Oh, this is kind of this has got him. This has got him." But they don't. They don't got them. Look, Jesus turns the table. Look at verses 29 and 30. Verses 29 and 30. Jesus says, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So in, in the, the rules of engagement in the first century, the counter-question was a legitimate response. And so Jesus uses the counter-question to say, I will give you my answer. But first of all, you need to answer my question. And so he puts in front of them this question of where does John's baptism come from? This question exposes the trap of, that the the, uh, rulers were trying to put on Jesus. You can see that by how they reason it. They say, well, if we answer this way, we're in trouble. And if we answer this way, we're in trouble. We can't say uh, from heaven or from man, because both of those are going to get us in trouble. And so he completely exposes their trap, and he reverses it. Look at 31 and 32. They discussed with one another, saying, If we say, and look how political and calculating this is, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answer, We don't know. We don't know. And when they say that, Jesus has completely humiliated them. He has completely won the argument. Because what is the number one thing the priests and the Pharisees and the scribes ought to be able to know with all of their learning and all of their position? They ought to be able to know whether a prophet is from God or a prophet is false. And so when they say they don't know, they are exposing that they have no right to be the rulers of the temple. They can't do the first thing of discerning rightly, right? I love what what David Garland says as he uh, uh, discusses this question. They must admit they cannot tell the difference between what is from God and what is from man. How humiliating. So they are completely delegitimized. The smartest guys in the room are made the fools. And so, as we look at this and as we seek to, to learn from it, I want you to grasp this. If you come to God as the smartest guy in the room, you will meet your match. I run across a lot of of people that think, if the day I meet God, I'm going to ask him this question. Boy, he better have a good answer for this. You know, maybe you listen to some of the popular comedians. They all have their big debate tub of reasons why God owes me an answer. I want to say, if that's the way that you are approaching God, this story is going to tell you exactly how it's going to end. You won't be the smartest guy in the room. You will go from clever to clueless like that. There's an interesting verse in uh, 1 Corinthians where, where Paul talks about all of this uh, mentality of, I am, I am going to be smart like God. I'm going to match God with my wits. I'm going to ask God my questions. I'm going to make him answer me. 1 Corinthians 1.20, Paul looks at the people who are responding to the gospel. And he recognizes an interesting facet of, of those who reject versus those who receive it. And he says this, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribes? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, God didn't create the gospel to make you feel smarter. God didn't make the gospel to affirm you in what you think is right and wrong. God made the gospel to crush you and remake you as a true child of God. And so the people who who say, I am smart, I am wise, I am ready to debate... They come to the gospel and it mocks them and they walk away. Listen, discipleship, which is essential to every Christian, is only available to those who can truly receive the words, You are wrong. And so here's another self examination question How's your spiritual growth? How's your progress on the path of discipleship? It stops. Stops cold at the moment that you are not learning from Christ. At the moment that you are not being corrected by Christ. Discipleship is only available to those who can truly receive the words you are wrong. Are you being corrected? fellow christian are you being corrected by your lord in thought in feeling in action that's good that means you're progressing that means you're conforming to christ but if you are looking at your life and you're like "Nah, jesus is just all right jesus is my co-pilot i'm holding the wheel you're not growing And that's a great concern, that you're treating Jesus more from the perspective of being clever than repentant. So the second turn then in this passage comes in this parable that Jesus speaks. He says, uh, he basically is going to tell us that the judgers are made the judged. And so he gives a parable to to these uh, smart guys. And uh, you can bring up the picture. And the, the, the parable is, is this. He tells this, this story where there's a vineyard. And it's clear that the vineyard's owner is God, uh, as we decipher the, the um, passage. And then this vineyard, this wonderful vineyard that was, was given to these tenants, was given to them to uh, produce fruit. And the responsibility of the tenants was to give a portion of the fruit back to the owner. And so we have this group of tenants that are not giving back the fruit. And so it is clear that the tenants here uh, represent the leaders. And then uh, Jesus shares in the parable that the owner of the vineyard sends several waves of messengers to the, the vineyard to say, where, where is my fruit? Where is the fruit of my vineyard? And, the, and those, those servants and messengers clearly represent the numerous prophets that were sent to Israel over the centuries to say, repent and bear fruit and faithfulness to God. And yet what we are told is that the tenants repeatedly take these messengers and abuse them and mistreat them and send them away empty-handed. So that finally the owner says, I will send my son. They will respect my son. And so his son comes to the vineyard and the the tenants at that point say, look, the son is coming. That means that the owner clearly is dead and there's no one else that can claim this property if the son is also dead. So let's kill him. And they kill the son of the owner of the vineyard. Now it is so clear that that son is Jesus, right? Jesus is, is displayed and revealing to these people right here, I am the son of the owner. I am the divine son of God. If they really want to know whose authority he has, he gave it to them right here. I think that this parable is so profound to teach us something about God and something about the, the heart of the tenants. I want us to observe in this, in this parable how profound God's patience is. This is modeling the the patience of of God as the owner of the vineyard. I mean, as you read this and you see the the messengers, the the prophets and the the servants come and be abused and be be hurt and even be killed. And you're, you're saying as you're reading this, judge these tenants already. Bring the sword. They are wicked. And yet, What we see is God's patience shown again and again. I'll send another messenger. I'll send another messenger. And then finally, I'll send my son. You see, patience is God's love to the wicked. Romans chapter 2, verses 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, what, what God does with these tenants is stuff that he does with every single person. Nobody will stand before God and say, You didn't give me enough of an opportunity. You didn't let me have a chance to receive the gospel. God will say, I was the vineyard owner and I sent this messenger and this messenger and this opportunity and this opportunity. Patience is God's love to the wicked. And his patience He refuses to bring judgment even when it is totally justified. It is totally right for the owner of the vineyard to clear out those wicked tenants after the first prophet is killed. But God's patience goes to the extreme. He says, I believe if they saw my son, That they would come to their senses. And so I am going to send my son. And the text actually says, Beloved son. I will send my beloved son. Who's God sending his son to? He's not sending his son to some lovable scamps. He's not sending his son to some people that had some hard knocks. He's not sending his son to some people that just need a chance. He's sending his son to murderers. He's sending his son to the wickedest of wicked. And he says, I I want them to be mine and I will send my son. I want you to grasp in this parable the deep, deep love of God. As Paul says in Romans, For God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We cannot hold God guilty. We cannot judge God for not giving us a chance as we recognize how extensive and long-suffering is His patience. This parable teaches us that God is not rash to judge. He is not sitting up there looking for the first opportunity to zap you. He's looking for every chance for you to to repent. And second, we see that God does everything to save us from his judgment. He does everything. What else could the owner have done? It is is us in our rebellion that exhausts God's uh, ability. (laughs) or I, 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 I want to use my words correctly. It is It is us that bring judgment upon us because we spurn every single thing that God could do to bring us to Him. And so look at the tenants' wickedness. They are here in this vineyard and they are showing the virus of the smartest guy in the room is in their heads. They respond to the sinning of the son not with honor, but with calculation. They say, this is our opportunity. And they treat him viciously. See the, the presumption of these tenants. They are presuming upon God's grace. They are presuming upon their position in the vineyard. They are there thinking that they can be owners when they are simply given a gift to work there. They have forgotten that they are employees, not owners. And so this is what the inflation of the smartest guy in the room does. They are so confident that they are right to have this land that they even judge the owner of the vineyard and say, this land should be ours. And if it takes blood to get it, so be it. You see, our wits always make too much of ourselves and too little of God and too little of others. Don't believe that? Go back to the last argument you retold to a friend. Who sounds the best every time you share an argument that you've had? I win every argument that I retell somebody. And the other person is just a slack-jawed idiot <laughs> by the time I'm done retelling the story. You see, our wits will make us so righteous that we will even condemn God if he stands in our way. That is the arrogance that comes through the smartest guy in the room. But look at this This. Fascinating turn. Their judging, their throwing out the, the son and killing him actually brings their wrath upon them. Their judgment cost them. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? And aren't you on the vineyard side at this point? What will the owner of the vineyard do? He better bring it hard after what they have done there is an inescapability of their judgment here no one can read this parable and not sign their name to judge them and judge them fiercely that is the the power of their their the, the, the conclusion of this parable he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Beloved, many refuse to repent because they live on the presumption that judgment will never come. We have in our mind this kind of dislodgable thought: nothing bad will happen. God is love. How could He possibly ever judge me? Or probably the one that that acquits us more than any other. I'm a good enough person. I'm a good enough person. Well, what what would heaven be if I don't qualify? I'd be really lonely, because I'm a pretty good person. We must learn this lesson from this parable. God's patience ends. Do not find yourself presuming upon the patience of God. It has been given for you to repent. It has been given for you to take to heart the words, I am wrong and come to Jesus. Finally, the third turn that we see in this passage is that the rejecters are made the rejected. And this is the tragic irony of of the smartest guy in the room. If you are going to be the smartest guy in the room, if you're going to be one who cannot be wrong, then you end up in ultimate rejection. The reason that we don't want to be wrong is because we don't want to be rejected. But if we refuse to be wrong when we come to the gospel, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will be ultimately rejected. Look at the last verse, verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. They got it. They understood exactly what the parable meant. They knew exactly who they were. And they did not repent. But they doubled down. They left Jesus and they're reloading, as we'll see next week. And this is why we need to grasp the, the, the saying, the quote of C.S. Lewis who tells us that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. You see, these smartest guys in the room walk away from Jesus. They take the judgment, they take the condemnation because they cannot stand being wrong and Jesus being right. And so, they refuse to repent. Their judgment comes because they have locked the door themselves to salvation. And so, there is truth that the person who does not repent has locked their own door. But what can we say? God can give no more than his Son. There's nothing left to give if they're not going to respond to the Son. If we do not respond to His Son, what is left? If we reject the Son, we will be rejected. I know in our catechism question today, we we talked about the, the scary reality of judgment and hell. But I think that as we understand judgment and hell through the process of this parable, we recognize it is not given to people who don't deserve it. It's not given to people who aren't given a chance. It's given to people who refuse to hear and receive grace. If we reject Him, we will be rejected. But this is not a message of judgment. This is not a message of condemnation. Because in this passage, the greatest turn is still to come. Look at verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our sight. What Jesus is saying is, as these people reject me, as these people conspire and finally put me to death like the, the sun in the parable, here is the great surprise. The son that was killed will rise. The son who was judged by men will be resurrected to new life. The rejected stone will become the foundation stone of the new temple. The new people of God will come and meet God and know God and experience God in the stone the builders rejected. This is the greatest turn. How amazing is God? Through the wickedness of the tenants, through the wickedness of these rulers... God defeats them by putting his son on the cross and expending his wrath upon him. He actually creates salvation through him. Through the wickedness of the world, he brings undefeatable grace. And so who belongs In this new temple, who are the people that the vineyard goes to? Verse 9 says that the vineyard will be given to others. Who are they? Listen, the others, the people who become part of the new temple, the new people of God, they are the ones who have been rejected. They are the ones who are unworthy of being in the temple. They are the one whose history fills them with shame. They are the one who is filled with the sensation that they are unforgivable. They are the ones who grieve and weep over their failures and over their struggles. They are the ones who are broken. They are the rejects. They are the island of misfit toys. And they are the ones that are brought into the vineyard. The scandal is that the rejected ones, anyone who has experienced rejection for not being good enough, for their sins, for their shame, for their guilt, if they they receive the kingdom because the righteous one has borne fully their rejection. I spent my college years, picking fights with Christians, until I finally realized I can't be the smartest guy in the room until I read the Bible. And so I took up the Bible and I started reading a chapter in the New Testament every day. And it did not take very long before I recognized I ain't the smartest guy in the the smartest guy in the room is Jesus. And he bested me. He crushed me. He showed me I am not right. I am wrong. He called me one day while I was taking a shower. And I wasn't expecting it. He called me to repent to repent of my self-righteousness, to repent of going my own way, to repent of thinking I can solve all my problems with my wits. And he brought me to tears. He crushed me. And in crushing me, he showed me that repentance is good. Repentance is life. Saying, I am wrong, is the first step of getting off the wrong path and putting yourself on the path of life and glory. Beloved, it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to not be the smartest guy in the room. Why? Because Christ makes you whole. So I want to leave you with this the kingdom is not given to the righteous but to the repentant accept your failures confess your sins admit your wrongs repent of being the smartest guy in the room and put your faith in Jesus if you do that you will be an heir to the kingdom with no fear and with it never, ever being taken from you. Amen?